This is Jim Pruitt, and you listen to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. So I farm so hard, the employees want to find me, and then want to hire me. What's 100K to a guy like me? Could you please remind me? Farm so hard, this ain't easy. Working late nights, you best believe me. My grades can only go ace. Never want to see another B unless I'm Jay-Z. Farm so hard, let's get paid. Welcome, guys, to another episode of the Farm So Hard podcast. This is going to be a new a live episode. It's going to be something completely different than we've ever done before. Uh, super excited to have probably the smartest nerds I've ever met in my entire life to come talk with us about a variety of things that may not necessarily be pharmacy related, but if you're smart, you can learn something and it can help you become a better pharmacist, nurse, and physician. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and welcome Brian Cox to the episode. It's going to be a phenomenal uh, series. Any other credentials and things like that you want to mention that you have? Cause I know you have alphabet <laughs> soup behind your name. Well, I do. I, well, I don't think I'm the smartest nurse there. Um, I just I found it's best to learn. Uh, I, well, I have my bachelor's degree from the University of Delaware. My wife and I both went there. That's where we met. And I actually have a degree in um, biology. I actually was going to go to med school is what I wanted to do a long time ago. Then I became a paramedic, and I worked pre-hospitally for a long time. I started that actually in 92 when I was uh, in high school, which was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, and then um, worked EMS for a long time, and then I went back to nursing school. When I graduated in 2004, I really wanted to do pizza. so I did that for four years, and then realized I really wanted to go back and do emergency medicine. Just what I knew, which I liked. And the best specialty you can <laughs> possibly have. I think so. I think you can't get a more rounded, more diverse one, uh, one group of people, but also patient population and what you're going to do. Anywhere from critical care to hangnails to fractures, to literally you do everything. Yeah. Is, is, is there something that you can come in and people say, oh, I'm tired of my job. I'm doing the same thing over <laughs> and over. For the most part, you would never have to say that in the emergency department. <laughs> So unless you're like, oh, I have traumas, then you start thinking about the type of traumas. You just get jaded properly. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, you get to see everything. Yeah, um, and you know it's hard to say that, but I did. I, we did do a crack in the CT scanner <laughs> a few months ago, and I was like, I think I've seen it all. I can be safe. But then again, you know, you, you never know. You really never know, and that's what I like about yeah. it. And my totally thing is like, what what the great thing about emergency medicine is, that no matter where you work after you can apply the same skills that you get from emergency medicine apply it to the ICU you can apply it to peace you can apply it to all these different areas because emergency medicine is a specialty of specialties mm-hmm. so yeah and I definitely agree with that yeah, it's especially specialties and you know a little bit of everything yeah it just makes it go well mm-hmm. so let's go ahead and jump into this this episode <laughs> is gonna be like a hodgepodge of different ideas and I really I want to title it like things we do in the ER that may not necessarily be the smartest. So I didn't want to say dumb things we do. Dumb things, huh? <laughs> we do a lot of dumb things. I think sometimes I think inefficiencies yeah. or maybe things that we don't work on that yeah. we should work on that yeah. we're not good at, that we should be good at. Yeah, so this, this episode we probably talk about how to get better. Do hey, better. Absolutely, how to do, do better. Do better. This is what <laughs> we're going to talk we about. Should do. So the first thing that we want to talk about really it's like EK, EKG interpretation because it's something that usually the EKG is ran by you guys depending on what shop you're going to have and it's immediately handed over to the physician if they're right beside you then a decision is made and you're just waiting for that information. So can Correct. you talk about like different aspects of ET, EKG interpretations and different things to look for and how it can make you a better nurse and pharmacists out there how it can make us a better pharmacist as well. No, absolutely I agree with that. Uh, the biggest thing with on a nursing perspective especially in our shop, is it's the importance since if you're a credential for STEMIs mm-hmm. 
and having those EKGs done out in your waiting room triage area or however you have it set up, everyone's set up so differently. The biggest thing in our area is really just recognition of it and understanding one first what's normal PQRST, what's normal EKG looks like and how to interpret what a normal EKG looks like. Unfortunately, a lot of our patients don't have normal EKGs, yeah. but you need to understand at least the baseline, what they um, are gonna look like. And then I think the other thing is knowing irregular versus irregular. Is it fast, is it slow? <clears throat> is it gonna be wide or is it gonna be narrow? So when you're dealing with like fast, wide, or are you looking at VTAC? Uh, or if it's narrow, are you looking at um, SVT? Or if it's irregular and narrow, are you looking at AFib? Which is where it kind of gets a little tricky. So you need to determine those. And then uh, I would say the biggest thing sometimes is those left bundle branch of inherencies, which seem to get a lot of people. And you can dig really deep in all these and go down a lot of rabbit holes. And especially but, you have one previously in the past. Is it new? You know, do you, is the patient new to your facility and you can't do that? So it really we, makes it challenging. We've had that those in the past too. New left bundle branch, what is it? Yeah. And I think that's where it just comes important if you see a left bundle branch, knowing what it is, getting it to in yeah. front of the physician right away because we need to make it. There's so many criteria you can use to determine whether that's going to be a STEMI And or the not. question I always have is like, usually we'll call, say we call a stimulator, say we call one of these things and then the cardiology teams come down and they don't agree <laughs> that it should be, like how do you advocate for your patient in those scenarios based off knowing a little bit more about EKG and more in the patient than the quick, you know, two second glance and like we're done? It's difficult just where we work, we work in a teaching hospital. There's lots of people. There's lots of layers. Um, and we have a process. So our biggest process, so if it's pre-hospital, we get the EKG ahead of time. Now, a lot of times they're gonna go on what the Zoll monitor tells them or whatever monitor they're telling them. It's got a protocol already embedded in it, a mathematical protocol that's gonna tell you whether it's a STEM. That's gonna happen, that's fine. I think that's default, just be default aggressive on that. We have to at least get that EKG in front of the attending and then decide if we're gonna call it or not. Okay. The biggest thing in the when it comes to waiting room and triage is one recognition. Do you understand what the STEMI looks like? And I'm not talking the very small indicative ones, but if it comes across on the EKG as saying MI and you're not sure, put it in front of somebody. But understanding what ST elevation is, what it looks like, and what like at the classic STEMI. Now when it comes to having cardiology involved, we is what I find is default to the experts a lot because that's their specialty, that's their job. However, doing this for a long time, I think emergency medicine and emergency physicians and some nurses that I know that are really good and do get into this, and even some paramedics, because I know some paramedics are good at this, I think they can make those decisions. I think they can call it. The way the system is set up, I think we have to defer to cardiology and what they are gonna determine what's a STEMI, where are we going and what's going to be the plan yeah. after that. So my thing is like, what some resources people can use or some things you've used to help yourself become better at recognizing EKGs? You've been doing this for <laughs> a second, so you've been able to see by off experience, but like, what are some tools you can use? Because you listen to all types of podcasts. You can, you can yeah, so there's a, a, lot of, a lot of podcasts. Um, there is, I can't remember the guy's name, out of Hennepin County that uh, does a lot of EKGs. The biggest thing I would say is one, a ACLS has a lot of good stuff. In True. It. Then there's a lot of books out there. I think there's a lot of books on EKGs that you can read and get experience from. And then the other thing is podcasts. Yeah. Listen to podcasts, look at podcasts. Uh, a lot of podcasts will have notes and they'll be able to show you EKGs, yeah. examples of STEMIs. And then there's a lot of online resources. Yeah. I think Life in a Fast Lane. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, a, that is a really good one. Like, 
thing for that. And then, have, have you been associated with like the Orange Book? Like it's like a, a EKG book that no, I don't just, know that just, one. It's an actual it's like textbook. I would okay. say and it goes through those and it like try to helps you do it. But everyone has their resource when it comes to EKGs. But li I think Life in the Fast is really good, and people yeah. don't realize it's Australian, but it's really good. Oh, I, I think that. I thought some of the guys are not in, but I, my thing is like with so globalization and so much foam out there, yeah. there's a lot to learn. Next thing, I think matters a significant amount for me. Most pharmacists probably don't think it, it, it matters. If you're a bedside pharmacist, as I like to call a lot of our ER pharmacists out there, if you're at the bedside, you need to have access to do these things or it gets tricky. Absolutely. Um, IV, IV skills, get, obtaining IVs is like, <laughs> uh, oh, I can't get it, I can't get it. I can't get it, I need yeah. this, I need that. Talk about like IV skills and like ultrasound guided IVs because it's a lot of talk out there about for one, is does your shot even allow you Correct. to do that? And that, that comes down to um, uh, the, the regulations set up by the nursing board. So the biggest thing, and the biggest thing I see is, it's not a skill, mm -hmm. and I really, I don't like it. It's not a skill that's taught in nursing school. Yeah. The opportunity to do a lot of IVs, I just don't, didn't think it was there when I was there. Yeah. I come from a different training background. I was a paramedic. And the way we learned was you shut the door in it. Yep, yeah. you got, you don't, you're not allowed to get out of the back of the truck until the IV started. Yeah. I'm not saying that's the best way to do it. I'm just saying that's how kind of we did it in the field sometimes. Yeah. And that's how you, and that's how you learned. And that's why, you know, when it was two in the morning and cars upside down, you're in there so you can start an IV because yeah. you learned. Um, I think so on the nursing side, I think it's just, it's one of those skills that you almost feel like we've gotten away from. And yes, there's some literature out there that says like, 25% of our patients don't need IVs. But what about blood work? What about phlebotomy? What if you don't have phlebotomists or techs that can draw blood? So this is where it comes down. This is gonna be practice makes perfect. You've gotta try and you've gotta try. And you're gonna fail a lot and that's okay, but it's just a skill you're gonna to have to learn. And it's gonna take time, a lot of time. Uh, I thought Rob on ERCAS had a good, I'm going to have to look at it, I got it on my phone, but a good article, it was by Michael Whitting in Journal of Emerging Medicine, was predicting failure of IV access in adults and the value of prior difficulty. And basically to summarize, they found after, they had like 600 patients, and what would happen is the nurse would come to the doc, just kind of um, paraphrasing and say, hey, this is a tough, difficult stick, the doc would be like, go find someone else to do it. Okay. Only 14% of those 600, roughly, were really difficult sticks that needed ultrasound guidance, central lines, or something else. Mm -hmm. So I really think that it comes down to is, and we, there are policies and procedures in every hospital about two sticks and out, things like that, and yes, you do have to be aware of the patient. Yeah. I think you do have to listen to the patient, tell you what they're saying, <laughs> but a lot, it was interesting, this study, if you read it, it, it almost is like, even the difficult sticks, someone was able to get it. Yeah. Especially you hear the patients say, oh no, get a, get a butterfly, or oh, you gotta do yeah. these different I things. I hear it all the time, you know, like, like, I'll get a 22, we just need blood and yeah. a line, and I, we can make, I can make things happen. Yeah, and then like, can you just, just talk about the difference with, for me, it's like the long versus the short ones, like the different gauges that you can place, because I know people say, oh, I want like a, a 20 long, while I want just a regular. What, does that matter? Like, So it does for flow rate, if we that, think about it. We go back to flow rate and physics, you know, the shorter the catheter, faster the flow rate's gonna be. The longer the catheter, it could be the slower. Now, when you're talking about ultrasound lines and we're doing the ultrasound lines, which I think alternative IVs is a good place to kind of start and ask before we discuss. 
like alternative IVs are good, like ultrasound lines are very good. Now length I think makes a huge difference on the ultrasound IVs. Uh, and this all depends on where you practice. Where I practice, we're allowed to do them, and I got a lot of experience doing them. We have a lot of more nurses learning how to do them, and I, it's a great, great supplement. It's a tool, though, in your toolbox. Not, I don't think it's your definitive. You got to use just like everything else in life. It's part of your toolbox. But I think length makes a huge difference there because basically, if you're going for deeper veins that are smaller, you're going to need the length okay. because you're going to need the length to go through all that depth to get in. Okay. And if you think about it, they're at the tip of those needles are just two millimeters of needle. You have to have the needle in the vessel plus the catheter. So the longer that catheter is, if you think about it, it just base-wise, going through all that tissue down to the vessel and then getting that catheter in, you want the length so you can have a, long, a good portion of the catheter in the vessel without whipping out on you. Yeah, then they make it, they make it harder for it. Mm -hmm. Just like, oh, I lost the line here, I lost this there. So my thing is I always go for fat, short, fat and uh, very shallow vessels. Okay. I have more success with that. But you can even, you know, even those, they're gonna whip out, patients flail around, you got a violent patient. Patient that's altered, they're gonna come out too. And you gotta make sure one's securing. And you know, you can screw it up too. I thought I was in a vessel that was long, you know, deep enough, big enough, and it just wasn't, and they whip out. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is uh, you have micropuncture kits that are out there now, which I really like those. We do, we, a lot of the docs will do them at bedside. We're not allowed to do them as nurses. Some places you are allowed to use the micropuncture kits. And in my thing, and, it, and this causes controversy, but this has pretty much been, I think, should be quelled by now, is EJs are not central access. <laughs> and having the opportunity to learn it, I mean, Paramex did it all the time. And yeah. when I would work DMS, I mean, if it was an issue, Put an EJ in. Yeah. You didn't worry about that, and we didn't have we didn't have IO guns when I was in EMS. Not a, not to when I got off the street. When I was getting off the street, we finally got the IO guns. Yeah. But you know, our thing was like you can get access to cardiac arrest. You put bilateral neck veins in. I yeah. mean, it's what you did. And I see every time it's like they come in. It's like, oh, we got pounded EJs. He can definitely do that. And I'm just like, I need to get fluids. I need to get blood. I need to do these things. Now I don't care how you do it, but get it done. But I think we just run out of options. We do, and then um, you know some of it is legal, and that's yeah. fine. You know, it is practice. It all depends on your practice, where you're at, what you're allowed to do. I think going in the future, I don't see why nurses can't do a lot of those other procedures, yeah. as long as there's correct training, yeah. and you're trained the right way, and you use the adjuncts you have, ultrasound things like that, and all the new techniques that are out there. I mean, there's tons of different IVs you can use. I think to help benefit, help make those procedures more beneficial and more successful. I think we can move to that because I'm going to be honest with you, and I think most ER docs, especially when I worked at, a, I worked at a small place too that didn't only had physicians. There was no residents. They appreciated it more yeah. than the nurses could do these other procedures because it didn't bog them down. When you're in a 20 bed ER and you're the only physician covering, you don't have time to start IVs every hour. Yeah. And this gives uh, I think nurses the opportunity to one, if you have a difficult stick, always use someone else that's got more experience or someone else that's really good at it. But you still got to try. Don't give up. That's a big thing. Don't give up when you can't try. But then when you truly have a difficult stick, having nurses the opportunity to have ultrasound, EJs, IOs, micropuncture kits, other techniques that they can use in order to be successful so you can get IV access. Because before we were doing ultrasounds, even in our shop, the PAs would get stuck doing IVs all the time, yeah. which drug down, took them away from doing yeah, patient care, getting disposed. Now your dispo times are going up and things like that. And I think this is a lot of... A lot of this could be 
given to nurses one to make them I think their practice feel a little more fulfilled like they're getting more opportunities and I think as it would speed things up yeah, even if nurses staff can be doing all of that by the time the physician comes get things done it's one of the things that you probably don't appreciate until you not have access mm -hmm. and need it to do something. You need it, yeah. So I think it'll help from a nursing staff from an autonomy standpoint, mm -hmm. a ED throughput standpoint, even if it's not an ED, like it's just throughput. Like if you can just get something in general, truck, mm -hmm. you know, it makes it so much better. So And EMS providers, that's why they're using it. That's yeah. why they have IOs, that's why they have EJs, that's why they have King Airways, that's why they have LMA, they have all these adjuncts to help them do their job yeah. to get care started and for us it would be just, and I think for nurses you know one you got to learn how to do IVs it's a very difficult skill you can't get frustrated you got to try you're gonna get difficult sticks that's okay and a lot of times you know just get the IV don't always worry about being the AT and the AC yeah. unless you're gonna need a procedure like certain scans we can do it but also talk with your CT people yeah. there's you'd be surprised how much you can do with the 22 yeah. if you have a difficult stick and you want to just speed the process up and then from there, once you've got that process down, I think it's having those alternatives are actually important. And I think, it, one, it saves time from the physician. Because so, their job is to dispo. They need to see patients, write orders, dispo. Yeah, and they're not like, super sick. Like, you just need to get mm -hmm. what you need. And sometimes, I believe, like, just understanding why you need the access mm -hmm. is like, if I have a patient that's a ESI 5 that's coming in and just needs some labs, that's a different mindset a versus if, if, if you need like a dang on, you know. And we so, don't do that a lot. There's yeah. a lot of patients. We could butterfly, get labs, do PM meds out the door yeah. and speed the process up by hours. Yeah. But I think having phlebotomy, that, that helps out sometimes. When I was at Brady, they have phlebotomy in the ER. See, that's awesome. We, we, every, every shop doesn't have that. So no. I feel like everyone has different resources. But again, the only thing that uh, ER will have is a nurse. Is a nurse, <laughs> yeah. And that's the majority of the, I mean, we look across the country, the majority of the ERs yeah. are not teaching hospitals. Yeah. They don't have tons of residents. They are managed by private practice, and not, not private practice, but they're managed by emerging medicine physicians. Yeah. And a lot of times it's 20, 40 bed, could be 60 bed ERs that have physicians, PAs, but you know, if they are covering 10 patients, they don't, you know, there's, that's taking time away from dispos and things like that that need to get done. The next part is like where I feel like it's definitely interesting. Meds <laughs> that we just don't need. Um, I talked oh, about. Lord. I talked about a few of this before, but you got a GI bleed person comes in, and you know they they have this some, very, some yeah. vomiting. It's horrible. First, it stinks. Mm -hmm. Like that's the first part that makes it bad. Like everyone who's like practicing the ER. Or, Knows what GI bleed is. Yeah, you just, just smell it. Like I yep. remember I walked in. I feel like my proud woman ER. Mm -hmm. I just clocked in. I was like. It must be a job lead in room eight. Mm -hmm. Didn't see the patient, wasn't close to the room, but I was able to figure it out. And I thought, oh yeah, it actually is. It's a horrible, horrible smell. Mm -hmm. Then we go to the fact that people get so aggressive when it comes to treating them from a medication standpoint. Correct. And you want to be a superhero, and I want octreotide, octreotide drip, protonics, protonic drip. If you got Nexium, eat your shot. Nexium, mm -hmm. Nexium drip. Um, all these things, and like, when you go to the bedside, you realize they don't play nice with each other. From a compatibility standpoint, they top your line for a long time, and usually these people don't have great IV access from begin with. So you're happy just to get your one or two, mm -hmm. and they're saying they want fluids going, they want blood going, and they want protonics going, or octreotide going. If these patients get any sicker, requiring like levofed or any other presser, it becomes horrible. 
to absolutely deal with. to manage all those uh, all those meds yeah. is the biggest thing. But the data this does it. <laughs> <laughs> it There's is. been good podcasts about this. I know we've had this conversation. Yeah. Your other our other pharmacists have, and it, like octreotide and protonics and Nexium, they should never be ordered anymore, as mm-hmm. far as I'm concerned. That is yeah. evidence. I think that's there that says why it's just tying up lines. Yeah. It's more you know you can give. Protonics IV, I can't remember the dose, but it's twice a day IV, yeah. and you can give them blood, and you got two lines. You don't tie up three lines. You're not, you know, the patient's not tied down with all this stuff, yeah. and it saves money, saves time, saves effort, and there's no evidence to really support yeah. it. Especially again, the drips are are, are the, the crux because like anybody can mix up a, a 40 or 80 protonics and give it as a bolus. Mm-hmm. That takes no time. Anyone mm-hmm. can give can that, that 50, 50 to 100 mic of triotide. Mm-hmm. That's no problem. In the ER, like we're not there to like, do, like that first dose is gonna work for like hours. Mm-hmm. Like, cover you. Like these things work for twelve to twenty-four hours. Mm-hmm. Why are we doing it again? We, we do it because the dogma say do it, but it is insane. It 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 is. It's just um, it's frustrating to yeah. see. And then oh, we have to order it. And then this has happened to me. The one of the uh, a newer. Like a AOD will come down again. We don't need all that stuff. I'm like, thank God. Yeah, and that's that's, that's the, the best case scenario. Mm-hmm. What I think is interesting, we have some junior, you know, practitioners and junior uh, nursing staff, new grads, because yeah. that's new year, new grads coming out in July one. So everyone's like, oh my God, this is so important. And then what happens is this: you have to make, make it in pharmacy, mm-hmm. to make it a stat. They send it now. The patient somewhere else. It could take 30 minutes to make it, depending yeah. how busy our pharmacy so by time, like yeah, that. by the time you, you patient get that med, for one, I've counted. Every day I come in now, <laughs> there's a protonics and an octreotide drip sitting in the return bin. See, my thing, it's a way, and big, the biggest thing is, one, it's a waste of money. Yeah. And I know I run a business now, and I've, I'm learning this the hard way, but just in healthcare, it's like we can't waste money. Yeah. Money doesn't grow in trees. Healthcare is costing more and more. Just in a plain sense of numbers, yeah. we're wasting money. Yeah. Like that we're not going to get back from the insurance companies. Yeah. Medicare, Medicaid, CMS, they're not going to pay for all this stuff. Yeah. Especially if we keep wasting it. And consistently from a pharmacy standpoint, we're all, our budget's always in the red. Exactly. It's like, so how why can we waste more money? <laughs> so ER pharmacists, pharmacists everywhere, get your shop changed over or have it set to this. I'm going to get the bolus in the ER if the patient's sick enough to require a drip, they're gonna be sick enough to require a quick dispo. Mm-hmm. Once they get themselves to the unit, get themselves to, to a step down wherever they're Absolutely. going, they can start that there. Correct. Because like clock stabilization, decreasing pH, that happens with the bolus. Mm-hmm. All this stuff happens with the bolus and you maintain it. But again, depending on what shop you're going to, I've been places where we get people upstairs within a couple hours mm-hmm. of actually talking to the admitting team. There's, there's no need unless that patient's hanging out in your ER for a day. No. To add some of these drips, and some people even talk about whether any of it is is actually necessary from a data standpoint. Uh, that's some meta analyses that I had from the previous episode that talks about this. And they're really know. not. I've, been, yeah. I've listened to that, and, yeah. and, and uh, MCRT. I think it did. Yeah. I think it did on MCRT too. But yeah, Rebel did a, a Rebel EM did, Rebel did, EM did a really good one. Too. There's no need for it. There's really no need for it because really, it's really, and, and you know, if you want to go even farther back. It's not even really need to do a rectal exam and look at blood. Blood is blood. If they have bleeding and they're unstable, they need to get admitted to the hospital. It's either ICU or floor. They're going to get a scope, and if they're really sick, they need blood. Yeah. You can get protonic strip. If they 
don't have bleeding, they literally could be followed up by GI the next day yeah. after the labs are stable. Like, I mean, we could really simplify that whole process. Yeah, Unfortunately, we're not, we're not gonna it depends where you work. And everyone gets very emotional about these meds, and I think we just got to the point to where my attending wants it, or my attending taught me back when I was in residency, yeah, exactly. this is why I do this is it. What we have to do it. But when you look at the data, especially big meta-analyses that we have now, it's like, why am I, for one, forcing my, my team to deal with all this? Because depending on your provider, they're just checking a box and ordering. And the nursing staff is like, oh, I'm just gonna just check this off. What happens sometimes is this. You order it, the drug gets down there, it's scanned, it's hang, it's hang, it's on the pole and goes up the patient. Because we have to fix numbers and we have to make sure our scan rates and things are done. I'm not saying people do that, but I just know that you yep. can't find that in the data. So no, you can't. Yeah, it's, but it's really the data says it's probably not. Yeah. It's probably a waste of. My thing is, it's probably a waste of time, energy, and money. Yeah. And in medicine, time and money are things you can't get back. Yeah. So don't waste them. Yeah. You can't. Your time you never get back. You're gonna waste 20 minutes mixing a drug. You just wasted yeah. 20 minutes of your day. Yeah. And you look, could be doing something else. It's so much stuff. But the, the last one I, I would I would talk about is like the whole deal of like IV antibiotics versus <laughs> oral. <laughs> Particularly for people that are not sick. So I'm not talking Thank about God your sepsis. Thank God we went to push IV meds yeah. every hour, uh, uh, antibiotics, yeah. excuse me. <laughs> not, not your uh, septic patients going to the unit. Mm -hmm. not, I'm talking about the person that comes in with some cellulitis, who they say, I want a one-time dose of bank. And your patient's sitting there waiting two, three hours just to get the infusion. Mm -hmm. Not to add to the fact that those big doses usually come from pharmacy. Correct. So add 30 minutes to an hour, hour and a half to when you actually find it and it started. So we're talking about five to seven hours for something that makes zero sense. Oh, absolutely. Like, it happens so often, you say, oh, just give a one-time dose of antibiotics, or for a simple infection, we have to give IV. Like, I have a simple UTI. We don't need to give, you know, cetraxone up front. Yeah. But it's just, it, all it's those, I mean, all of them, all of them can give an IV almost. Yeah. I think I'll go to the bank. Yeah. And Jen, yeah. that's it. And like for well, the most part, it's like you don't need That's those. big ones in the ER. Other than if you're doing like a Maripanem or some special yeah. antibiotic. But those are, those are sick people. Those are sick people that are should the be in the ER anyways. They have a UTIs and sitting in triage. Mm -hmm. Oh, let's just get them in. They, they was tachycardic to the one teens, nothing else, because they're nervous and they're in pain. Mm -hmm. And then we just we just do certain things that make zero sense. Mm -hmm. there's, there's data out there that says that you should not do this. Mm -mm. From a bank standpoint, you don't reach that level of. AUC to MIC to actually even be beneficial. You're inducing resistance because you have such a low level because you're not following up multiple doses. No, it makes no sense. Yeah, and that, well, that, that makes the biggest point. I mean, we're given so many antibiotics. We give so many antibiotics in the ER, so many. My thing is like, one, we gotta have a better way to do it until they really need an IV. We can do so many PO, we can do so many IV push that have the same results. Yeah. And the other things, do they really even need it? Because are we just creating more problems? Yeah. And our patients are already complex, and do we just, are we, and young people, are we just creating more problems? Yeah. And I think fixing this problem helps out a good bit because you fix the IV versus IV pushing PO standpoint, you, then you start thinking yourself from a process standpoint, and then you ask yourself like, wait, does this patient actually need Vanxosin, mm -hmm. or they just need like Ceftonir? Yeah. Or they just need something you know very simple, and we and get much, so caught up with that. And what's the difference even in cost? Yeah. Just for one PO man versus like two yeah. rather big, IV medications yeah. that we have to give, and it's tying up time, mm -hmm. and the patient's sitting there for three hours getting their dose. Yeah. That's resources. Yeah, and resources, time, money, everything. Yeah. It just it makes 
very little sense, but we just do it because oh, you know, makes I, I like I like the way Bank Zosin sounds. I like the way just a one-time dose of Bank sounds. So, well, and it also goes back to the sepsis guidelines. And since so many people have not done well with it, it's almost like now that like we're forced into. Yeah. Since half the people don't behave, or you didn't behave in the past, you didn't have your numbers right, we're going to make you do everything, yeah. when really we could be documenting appropriately and properly and yeah. getting away from a lot of that. Yeah, and from the sepsis, that's going to be a whole different topic that we're going to talk about, because that's just, I'm happy ASEP came out some stuff, I'm happy people resisted <laughs> yes. the, the push for it. Every, every year, it's like three hours, everything within one hour. Pretty sure I'm like, all right, everything happened within 30 minutes, and mm -hmm. then I went back and, and looked at lower, some lower, of the data, lower, 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 lower. and I'm like, uh, statistical gymnastics. I love that word because we do a lot of that where Absolutely. we say, based off this, you know, multivariate analysis, this time window where we saw increasing death versus that, when that wasn't the actual thing they studied. Mm -mm. But I, I, I digress. We on could that. go down on the sepsis yeah. like uh, roller coaster. One thing that I'm like super interested in because with me working where we work now and my, my, my past where I work, I see a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. I see a lot of patients coming in that oh, need yes. blood. And one of the things that we can we need to do better is with how we do MTP. Uh, Correct. It's so much. You, you, you can just elab elaborate on that. So I think it, it all goes back to we have a 20 year, 25 year war still going on with the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, and even Syria. And there's so much data now from the military. And yes, there is a caveat there. These are young, healthy men and women. Yes, they are all typing crossed ahead of time. Yes, they can go next to their buddy, do a rapid HIV, H, H, you know, hepatitis, know that they don't have that and can get whole blood, but let's be honest, we know now that all that time that the military studied with their uh, trauma and combat casualty care that IV fluids are not needed. There's no, it doesn't matter, you know, LRN, none of it works. And it's real simple. You need to give three liters just to keep one inside the body. It doesn't carry oxygen. It, it, it doesn't do anything. It's not even good for volume expansion. It, it really doesn't do anything. And it, it makes things worse. Coagulopathy. Absolutely. That's, a, that's my big thing. Is like, and that's a diluting triad. Your, yeah, you're diluting it, and it's cold half the time. Yep. So now you got coagulopathy. You got hypothermia. You're just running yourself into trouble. Yeah. And the biggest thing is too now too. We also know that um, permissive hypotension is a big thing. We don't need oh my to God. This is fill everybody up with like reach. eight liters of fluid. Just to get their, like, I want Just their get blood a number pressure better. to this. It's like, <laughs> resolve, your, your, again, everywhere posted on paper, all the studies said, but we see a blood pressure that's like 90, a SVP of 98, we freak out. It's like, depending on what you're looking at, anywhere from, from, from 90, SVP of 90 to like 110 is where you can get them. They don't Correct. need to be, you know, map of 80 and, and stuff like that. They, they don't, don't need that. Like, no, like, and that only goes to like, got to remember it's all about controlling the bleeding and hemorrhage yeah. so it's all about you know, in trauma it's all about controlling hemorrhage we know hemorrhage kills so it's controlling hemorrhage whether it's in the field or in the ER and in the, in the ER you have to remember is trauma is a surgical emergency not a medical emergency all the time which means it needs a surgical intervention so a patient coming in pale diaphoretic with two puncture wounds in their belly and they're tachycardic doesn't need to be in the ER it is damage control, they're gonna be hypotensive, start the blood and move. And I think that's what we get tied up on. We get tied up on these numbers. And the biggest thing is, 
you can in certain scenarios. The biggest thing is blood first. If they need, they need it, they need blood. That's what they need yeah. to get. We have the option for whole blood. There are some places that only do whole blood. It yeah. is expensive, but to me, it's awesome. You give whole blood, you don't have to worry about the pieces and parts. Yeah. And then the other part to that is no fluids, but you got to give the pieces and parts. That yeah. means you got to pay attention if you're doing bedside, how much blood, how much plasma, how much platelets are you yeah. giving these patients. Communicate. And okay. communicate that. Because it may be one nurse that's actually doing the documentation who's responsible for the patient, and it may be another nurse actually at the bedside running these things, and depending on your experience level of trauma, yep. it makes it challenging. Pharmacists, this is the area where you can get involved. I'm consistently doing blood, because mm -hmm. to me, I don't see the difference between running blood and running fluid, because I spike something, I put it in a rapid diffuser. And you're, just, you're giving it, we're <laughs> yeah. giving it. Yeah. You're getting, in our shot, in most all trauma centers, you're giving just blood. Yeah. You're just gonna either put it in a 500 bags and you're pressurizing it, or you're pouring it through a Whatever uh, rapid infuser you're using at your facility, you're going to be doing that. And you're going to the OR immediately. And like, don't play around. Like, the, my thing is this don't play around with some of these other things. Like, we shouldn't be talking about pressers up front. Within the first mm -hmm. 20, I, I think the goal now, we shouldn't be thinking about pressers up front unless we've done MTP and like actually got all the products in. Not like I had a, had a case where I got called to the OR for a patient that was like coding in there. They had just gave like just PRBCs, just just you know rep. just one. It's like just solely lots. they so gave we that. We give twenty to thirty sometimes. But then I came in. I was like, oh, we've done four or five I've, of those. Yeah. No platelets. Mm -hmm. No no no. Uh, and I think people forget about that. And just wondering like why the patient mm -hmm. blood is just like Kool Aid. Mm -hmm. and I'm like give factors. Give you got to give all that, that stuff. And that's why I love whole blood. But I think pharmacists. This is the area where you can get involved because. I've done it when I was where I am now. I've done it at the second busiest trauma center in the in, in the world. And if you can take over that, depending on your staffing, if you have one nurse in the in a trauma bed, yeah, I've been there. Patients. We've had we've had busy days, and yeah. it's just you doing yeah. all the blood, do all, all the that. bedside stuff, and one person documenting. So it's, like, that's where you need to be able to say, okay, oh, this is why IV access is important. Mm -hmm. This is why understanding that I don't need, need. a platonic drip that's mm -mm. incompatible with my blood, that's mm -hmm. more important. And I don't need to be given three liters of cold fluid so a patient mm -mm. comes in and get MTP. So I think communication, out. getting this stuff done, getting getting good access, because I, you'd be surprised what a, a good 18 can do for you in those situations. Or I really just like, I like a portis, I'm not gonna lie. I would love in my Oh, resident. central, actually central, central access is, yeah. is imperative, but we've had times where we weren't able to get central access and I got the ultrasound yeah. out and I'm putting 16s in with yeah. the ultrasound, but, you know, if the patient needs to go to the OR, yeah. you know, okay. doing time to do the central line, is it faster just to the ultrasound line and yeah. start blood and move? Or is it faster just to go? Yeah, just go directly Cause, there because there really, times where it's like, okay, get out the way. It's damage control surgery, which yeah. means it's, it's surgical emergency, it needs to be controlled in the operating room. And I think we just gotta always shift gears when it comes to trauma. Mm -hmm. Because it's so many times where you get a traumatic arrest or you get a really sick trauma patient and we think, oh, the lactate is elevated, sepsis. What the <laughs> hell is going on? He got hit by a bus. <laughs> I don't like lactate, and, and I, that's why lactate's yeah. bad. Like, getting your- get people caught up in these hamster wheels yeah it just makes you want to do things that's not important so like just like you're saying blood 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 from a pharmacy standpoint if you're not giving whole blood and you're giving like two prbc's calcium like mm -hmm. calcium, Lots calcium, calcium calcium like there are some studies out there using three grams of calcium chloride correct for every one yeah. well that new there was that new paper yeah. i don't remember it was on it um I can't remember who wrote it, but their guidelines are for every unit of blood, you give one gram of calcium chloride or three mm -hmm. of 
mm-hmm. uh, calcium gluconate, which is like 10 mLs where we have yeah. our 10 mLs. So it's three yeah. 10, ml, 10 mL bottles. Yeah. And no one that like or you can, one uh, the fasting we had the injector. So we have like the central access, which is cool. Again, depending on your shop and depending on the patient, I'm not gonna say what what we do or what what happens depending on your institution of how you administer calcium. You have to be very diligent because usually yeah. you have one or two good access, and I'm not going to like mess up giving blood, but I actually need to give the calcium to help Correct. the clotting factors work because it's like a it's a cofactor in like 13 different phases within the clotting cascade. Absolutely. So my thought is this: when they first roll in and the blood is getting pulled up, in my head I'm already asking, can I give calcium? And I get that in immediately. It should. I think it should be a TXA. We're we're in a, a different phase of TXA right <laughs> Depends now. Depends who you talk to and yeah. our trauma attendings. Yeah. We're in a different some phase like, of that. Don't you dare do that. And some are like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. So my <laughs> thing is like, get that up front. If you got two sixteens, get the blood rolling on one side. Correct. Get your meds in. And there's controversy whether <laughs> TXA can be pushed or not. Um, I've reached out to your manufacturers and asked them where this hypotension came from. And and sick trauma patients. I right, it was so how can you tell if it was the drug or just something else? So I, I, I definitely want to get more data on that. If you guys got it, please, I know of a place that had <laughs> over hundreds and hundreds of TXA IV push mm-hmm. without Correct. any effect. Now I've got some MUEs to prove that, but I think that's a, from a drug standpoint, get those things in, but don't mess up the blood. No. Like, and get those patients out of the ER. Correct. There's only two caveats, and the one is when you're dealing with head trauma, too. Yeah. And you do have to be wary of that, where you want your maps. And that's where things get, that's where we're not just talking about just someone bleeding out, whether yeah. to GSW the chest, chest or admin, or they've got a partial amputation where they're hemorrhaging from a large vessel. You do have to be wary when you're dealing with multi-system, when you're dealing with head injuries, how, where you want your map, how you're going to do things. And that's where like blood pressures might become, Yeah. Uh, that's where your little caveat is. And then the other thing is, and this is, we've gotten caught on this, if you're giving blood and you're still hypotensive, don't always forget about the spinal, some kind of neurological spinal yeah. shock. Because you can have that, but my thing is, if you think you even have a spinal cord injury where you're dealing with like total neurogenic shock, you still have to assume the patient's bleeding yeah. and in my is eyes. You can, you can and get yep. that volume in and it's going to help out and it helps you identify that mm-hmm. quicker versus like, oh, I gave three, I got to give three, three liters. Of blood. Wait, hold on. Like how long is it going to take you to get three liters of fluid in compared to just one unit of, of, of blood? Of blood. Especially if you, if you guys have access to whole blood. I think it's the cool thing to do now so people Absolutely. have it more often, even if you have to like reach out for it. But can you talk about like, as far as like activating MTP like prior to a patient get there because that's an issue that comes up sometimes where you want the cooler if you don't have a cooler in your ER that has those things if you want an extra amount what's the logistics of getting a cooler to you very quickly so that's going to depend on where you work so one if you don't work in a place where you don't have blood this is where you're going to have to you're going to have to use fluids and then you're either going to have to use push dose epi or you're going to have to use a presser along with it so you're going to have to give 250 mls at a time and maybe some pressers just to keep their blood pressure up. If you're in a system like we are, it's real simple. You just make a phone call. It's yeah. almost like phoning a friend. So MTP and R, um, you know, if it's a level A and they're hypotensive and I think their ABC sort already sounds bad, I just call. Yeah. I'll just make the dough, create, or however you guys, however, it depends how your system's set up. For us, it's create a dough, get an MRN, male or female is what you need to know, and you call a blood bank, yeah. and you get it, get it rolling is what I always do. You can always cancel it because those those yep. packets are usually older blood that's kept off to the side just for that. A lot of times it's just you need to get someone to go get those packets because yeah. in our system, 
you know, you could run through that uh, bedside yeah. blood refrigerator in mm, five minutes, yeah. like not even five minutes. You can do it really quick, yeah. especially know, if you I, had back-to-back facts. I, I ran through two of whole blood up front, and they had like some fluids going on before, so I was like, okay, we have to account for a baby coagulopathy from that standpoint. They were still hypotensive, and then we didn't call MTP. So they was like, well, I want, I want uh, FFP now. I, I want platelets now. Um, my thing is just call it. Yeah. My always thing is like you can always return to blood, and you need to make sure wherever your system is, where you work. The biggest thing is make sure that blood gets back, because you don't want to waste that blood, because then it goes back on them, because they have criteria they have to follow. Then the lab has to you know document stuff, and they get in trouble. Yeah. My thing is, if you think it's bad, and you think you're gonna need a lot of blood, I'd rather have it than have to call it and then have someone run upstairs, yeah. because it's just it's delaying time. And I hate again. I've now I've been fortunate to have enough trauma experience now where I hate when I have a patient, a young patient that's dying in front of me and we don't have the tools necessary because it was a delay here. I had, you know, teenagers in front of me mm-hmm. that needed blood and there was a delay because somebody didn't make a call or we didn't actually activate it and it was a miscommunication or somebody was rude to uh, rude to the blood bank. Yeah. Don't be rude yeah. to the blood bank. Just don't man, do that. We, we had this a, man, a month or two ago, I don't remember right, right shift change at seven. We had two, we ran two MTPs right at yeah. the same time. And the one was going to the OR anyways, but we had it already started. Yeah. And it was, all right, so what, the patient's going to the OR. That, you know what, at least the blood's getting to the patient. They're gonna have, when they get to the OR, they're gonna have blood yeah. ready to go. And that's the thing is you're not delaying that because yeah. even though the patient's gonna get, um, opened up and they're going to go in and try to find all the bleeding they're still going to need to replace it and you need to have that that kind of supply it's almost like a supply chain you got to have that supply chain started because it is such a resource intense procedure because blood bank has to get all the blood they have to get the blood to you where are you at are you in the or are you in the er you know where are you at with your resuscitation and it is a major uh, major supply and major logistics That, that's all I had. I think we're getting to a nice, nice stopping point. Guys, let us know how you enjoyed this concept uh, with this being more of a video uh, format. Uh, I think Ryan for let me come to a shop. I know we're in the brewery actually. Yeah, we, we may, we, we may have a little bit more uh, events here in the future if he, if he allows us. And I wouldn't mind having people come from over, come here, have a nice drink, there you go. and just enjoy themselves. So, uh, yeah, check the show notes out. I'll put more of that on on the website. Um, how, how can they find products for you? Where so we're on a, we do most everything is in-house. So it's Oak Road Brewery in Somerville, South Carolina. Most everything is in-house. We do all lagers. We're German-centric, so we do have lots of lagers on tap. Um, we do, I do different, I'm the head brewer and the owner, so I do different variations of all the lagers. So we do light, dark. Uh, we do specialty lagers. We also do Berliner Weiss. We've got two Berliner Weisses on tap right now. We have a peach one and a mojito one. Uh, we do do an IPL, which are imperial, um, an IPA that's a lager basically, <laughs> the best way for all the hop heads out there. Um, but we do a lot of traditional German stuff. So we have Joggenbord, which is our Munichellas. We do a Ausfart, which is our German pills. We have Triple H, which is our German Hefeweizen. That's our bases. And then we also do a Munich Dunkel, and then we have a Schwartz beer we're gonna be doing. We're actually taking our Schwartz beer and putting it on all the time. Okay. And we're gonna try um, uh, some different things with that. And then we have, uh, my wife runs a Women in Brewing, so we do a Women in Brewing, they do a beer every quarter. Mm. We have one of theirs usually on tap. So we do a ton of specialty beer, especially in May. So we do Star Wars, and we did a bunch of Cinco de Mayo beers too. 
So you guys will probably see more from Brian. You'll see more from his shop. Uh, we're, gonna probably, we're gonna try to do as much as we can here. This is, this is phenomenal. So again, I always end it out the same way, guys. You don't have to be a pharmacist. You don't have to work in the ER, but everything you do, make sure you farm so hard. Closes it. Ozzy scratches his head. Whatever she's looking for, it isn't in there.